Thank you, Barry. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we're continuing in the series we started a couple of weeks ago through this good book there in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, chapter 2. I mentioned in the uh, first service that um, two-thirds of the uh, surface of the earth is covered by water, and it seems that the other third is covered by Barry and Lily of Phillips. They are uh, all over the place, and God is using them, certainly in that country there in their province, and uh, I think spiritually that province doesn't look like it did. Uh, 10, 12 years ago, uh, and much of that is because of the Lord's work through this family, and uh, you know our church has been able, thankfully, to be uh, a part of that picture to a very small degree, but man, I, I cannot express enough how God is using Barry and Lilia, and uh, your prayers for them are not in vain, and uh, those of you that have shown tangibly love towards them, we as a church, every time we collect an offering, you know, in a sense, a very real sense, part of that goes to work that's being done there in the Philippines, uh, you're a part of that, but man, God is using this family, and so you continue to pray for them, and I'm so glad, so glad that they were able to be with us uh, for a little bit today. Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, when I heard uh, what Barry shared and uh, kind of matched it up against what I was prepared to share today out of Nehemiah, I thought, boy, what a great fit. Only God could kind of put these two dates together for him being here and us being at this chapter in Scripture. You've probably heard the word burden before, right, yeah, from a Christian perspective. It's one of those Christian lingo kind of words we use, a burden. You know, my heart is burdened, or I'm burdened for this person. Interestingly, as I was preparing this message, you know, I, you know, I was just kind of looking for, you know, ideas, thoughts, those kind of things. So I, I Googled, right? It sounds very theological, doesn't it? I Googled Christian Burden. Did you know there's a guy named Christian Burden who has a Twitter account? Uh, poor guy. I hope he's a believer. Otherwise, he's really, <laughs> he'll have no excuse when he stands before God one day. But we use that word burden, you know, and we use it to refer to typically other people or, or other groups or, or other needs. And, you know, for me, I didn't go looking for a definition. I just kind of crafted one myself. And I, I think to me, that at least this captures what a burden is, that it's really this overwhelming sense of empathy for another person or for another group or for, another, or for a need. You know, and whenever we sense a person and we have such an overwhelming sense of empathy, compassion towards them, or maybe it's a certain group of people or, or a specific need that we have. You know, you heard Barry's story, you know, about the typhoon that has swept through there. You may have had this overwhelming sense of, of empathy for those people. Maybe for some of you, you've been there and you know some of those, those families and you have this sense of uh, just an overwhelming empathy for them. That's what I would call a burden. And for us, we have burdens at different times in different ways. You know, we're burdened maybe for people in our family. Some of you may have a spouse, a husband or a wife who doesn't know Christ, or they're not plugged into ministry to church, and you come by yourself, and, and, and you wish they were here with you, and you're burdened, right? You're burdened for them. You have this overwhelming sense of empathy, or maybe you have a child or a grandchild who's making choices that just break your heart. You know, and you've got this sense of empathy for them that doesn't tie into anything else, really. I mean, you can't even explain it. It's just this, this overwhelming empathy for them or a certain group of people or, or a need that you, that, that you recognize. That's what it means to have a burden. And what we find in Scripture is that many times some of the greatest work that God does in a person's life or in a community, in a group's life, or, or to meet a need, often starts with a burden. And we, we have to think through this a little bit to a deeper degree because when we begin to wrestle with what it means to be burdened for someone or some group or something, some need, you know, it really takes us to a bigger question. And the question is this, does God really, really honestly, does God really care about every single person on this planet? I mean, can we be assured of the fact that God cares as much for everybody else as he does for me? Because we have no problem singing about God's love for me. But does he really care about everybody else like he does for me? 
And does God really care about every group represented on the face of this planet? And does God really honestly care about really every single need in a person's life, you know, across the landscape of this world in which we live? Does God really care? And if he does, then how does he demonstrate that care? Well, that's what I want us to see in Nehemiah chapter 2. And just to kind of catch you up a little bit of what we've looked at so far, we started this journey through this book uh, a couple of weeks ago. I gave kind of a flyover. We looked at the book in general. And then we started last week moving through, and we covered all of chapter 1. This morning, we're going to cover all of chapter 2. And what we found here is that Nehemiah lives in a very interesting period of time. If you look at it on a, on a timeline, let this platform sort of be the timeline, all the way over to your far right would be creation, Adam and Eve. And all the way to the very far end of the Old Testament on this end, you would have Nehemiah's story. Now, his book is not at the very end. His book is more in the middle, you know, and uh, kind of around Psalms. But his story is at the end of the Old Testament. After Nehemiah's time, you've got 400 years of silence. Then you've got all the events of the New Testament, which cover about 100 years or so. So Nehemiah is at the end of the Old Testament. And the basic setting of his story is that God's people, the people of Judah, have been taken off into captivity. They had sinned. They had wandered from God. They had rebelled against God. God warned them. He always does, right? We never get away without a fight. God always warns us whenever we wander. And he did with the people of Judah. And so he sent prophets, he sent warnings, all kinds of stuff going on circumstantially. And he warned them, you got to come back, got to come back, got to come back. And they didn't. And so God orchestrated the events where his people, the people of Judah, were taken off into captivity by the Babylonians, the world power at that time. They were taken off into captivity. It was about three different waves, right, where, where different numbers of Jews were taken off out of their homeland into Babylon. But the last one was in 586 B.C. And so when that last wave went, it was kind of like, you know, turn the light off when you leave. There were a few that were still scattered around Jerusalem, more of the, the poor population, but the majority of the people of God were taken off to Babylon. And so there they sit, and they're in Babylon, they're living out their lives in captivity, and finally, a man named Cyrus of Persia, he, you know, the Persians come in, they overtake the Babylonians, they become the world power, and as was Cyrus's custom, he, he set, you know, the captives free. I mean, he said, you can go home, you can go back home again. It's a thousand miles from here, Susa, all the way back to uh, Jerusalem, so uh, have a great trip, you're free to go. And 50,000 Jews went back home again. They went back to Jerusalem. They found their city in shambles. Jerusalem was just, uh, I mean, decimated. I mean, no temple, no wall. I mean, people scattered all around. It was not the way they left it. And so they began rebuilding the, the, the temple. They finally now have a place of worship. And years pass. And finally, we get to around the year 445 B.C. It's about 100 years almost now. Uh, since the Jews were set free and, and returned back to, to their homeland. And Nehemiah comes on the scene. Chapter 1, we looked at last week, Nehemiah learns about the state of his city and of his people. That the city is torn down, the, the temple is torn down, the wall is torn down, the people are, are uh, you know, they, they've lost everything. Decimated. And Nehemiah begins to feel a burden for his people. And he begins to feel a burden for his city. And what he does with that lays out a lot of examples, a lot of, a lot of principles for us to be aware of whenever we find that our hearts are burdened for a certain person or for a certain group or for a certain need. So let's look at one principle this morning. We're going to be, then begin to kind of sift through it as we look at chapter two. And the principle is this, is that God grants burdens by his love. You know, we sometimes look at burdens as a negative thing, but God gives us burdens because of his great love. But God provides for those burdens as a result of his power, 
But the way he often fulfills those burdens, the way he does something about it, is often through his own people. And so let's go ahead and kind of sift through this a little bit, phrase by phrase, this morning. And I think you'll see it laid out really clearly as we move through Nehemiah chapter 2, that God gives us burdens, those burdens for other people, for other places, for for certain groups, for uh, needs are not bad things, those are good things. God grants those, but he provides for them as well through his power. But the way he often does something about those burdens, the way he reaches people and, and ministers to needs is often through his own people. So the first phrase of this, that God grants burdens by his love. Let's go ahead and jump into chapter 2, and let's see how that shows itself here in the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah. You can begin with me here in your copy of Scripture. If you don't have a copy, we've got some out in the lobby. We'd love to give you one uh, for free, and uh, you use it, you read it, you live by it, and uh, I think you'll find one of the most valuable things that you've got will be that copy of God's Word. So let's read together, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, And it came about in the month Nisan, that's a, a month on the Jewish calendar that would equate to our kind of March-April time on our calendar. In the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's the, the Persian king of, of this particular reign, that wine was before him, and I, this is Nehemiah speaking in the first person, and I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now the reason Nehemiah says this is because Nehemiah's job was a government job, in a sense. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. The very last verse in chapter 1, verse 11, tells us that. We unpacked that last week, you know, just very simply put, Nehemiah's job was to go... It's good. It's good. It's good. That that was his job, right? He tastes the wine. If it's not poison, he says, King, drink it up. And that was his job. That's what he did. Now, he was probably a very close advisor to the king because he was with him all the time. Very, very trustworthy, obviously, you know, with a job like that. And so the king more than likely leaned on him often. But Nehemiah tells us that in this setting, he took the wine up and he gave it to the king. He had not ever been sad in his presence. Why is he sad? Because four months prior, In chapter 1, verse 1, we begin to see that it's now four months earlier, and Nehemiah begins to learn that his people and his city were not doing well. And so it's now four months, right, since chapter 1, verse 1, the month Kislev, follow me, and now chapter 2, verse 1, the month Nisan, there's four months between those months, four months that Nehemiah's heart has been burdened for his people, burdened for his city. And as we looked at last Sunday, whenever it comes to prayer, we have to understand and remember that prayer always precedes action. Whenever we learn of a need, we don't just necessarily jump right in there all the time and try to fix it in our own strength. No, we begin to pray, but prayer never, uh, uh, it never replaces action. We can't just be people who say, yeah, I'll pray for you, and then never do anything about it. it the two work hand in hand. So for four months now, Understand this, Nehemiah has been praying for his people, people of Judah, in his city, the city of Jerusalem, a thousand miles away. So his heart is burdened, God has given him this burden for his people, he's given him this burden for the, for the task at hand, which is to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, which was extremely needed because it would give them protection, it would give them identity. And so Nehemiah steps before the king, and the king said to me, why is your face sad even though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Why is this? Because if you step into a king, an eastern king's presence in that condition, and you're sad, you're downcast, you don't bring him up, but you bring him down, he could off with your head. You know, this is not a good thing to be. So Nehemiah is afraid. He cannot hide the burden of his heart. And he steps before this king with, a, with, with overwhelming empathy for his people back home. In verse 3, he says to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? 
when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. In other words, Nehemiah says, how can I not be this way, king? How can I not be impacted by what's going on with my people in my city back home a thousand miles from here? And what Nehemiah shows us here is that, in a sense, he had no say in this, right? God is giving him, God is granting him a burden for what is going on back home with his people in his city. God is giving him a burden in his heart. And it's not something Nehemiah could orchestrate. It's not something Nehemiah could say, you know what, I haven't been burdened in a while. I think maybe after breakfast today, I want to sit down and try to work up a burden for some people. He couldn't do that. What happened here is that Nehemiah was so close in his walk to, with, with God. He was so intricately intertwined with the heart of God that what broke God's heart broke his heart. And so whenever we as people now, 2,500, 2,400, 45 years later, whenever we as followers of Jesus Christ come to a place and we honestly say, you know what, I don't have a burden really for anybody. I don't have a burden to reach anybody. I don't have a burden for the lost who don't know Jesus. I don't have a burden for my neighbors down the street. I don't have a burden for anybody except me and my comfort and my welfare and my wealth and my easy life. If, we, if that's what we say, if we have to be honest and say, I have no burden for any group, any person, any need, what does that say about us? It says that somewhere along the way, we became badly disconnected from the heart of God. Badly disconnected. And one of the reasons I believe the church today is so, uh, so inefficient and so anemic in its, in its impact in its community and in its, in, in its world is because we're going through the motions and we're singing the songs and we're sitting down smiling and nodding at all the right places in the sermon, but we're so far disconnected from God that we can't even evaluate it accurately. And the church today is burdenless. Nehemiah shows us a lot about who he is by the simple fact that he was moved to such depth of empathy and compassion for his people that he could not even hide it when his life was at stake before the king. And what we find here is that God grants those kinds of burdens because of his love, his love for people. So who are you burdened for today? You burdened for that spouse that doesn't know God? You burdened for that child that's breaking your heart? Hey, listen, God loves them more than you do. <laughs> and perhaps he's given you that burden for them because he intends to do something about it. So God grants burdens by his love. God doesn't just give burdens for burden's sake then. God doesn't just say, well, now you've got some empathy and compassion. That's good. You know, we're all done. No, God doesn't do that. God then begins to provide in the midst of that burden. And this is where it gets really interesting. Let, let's move on to the, next, to the next verse as we move through chapter 2. That God perverts, provides for burdens through his power. Verse 4. It says, so the king said to me, what would you request? <laughs> this is a really good question, by the way, to, to, to receive when you're standing in front of the most powerful man on the planet at that moment, when he says, hey, what do you want? You know, this is like, Merry Christmas. What do you want? Whatever you want, just tell me. And so he says, what would you request? So here's what Nehemiah says. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's somewhat secondary, but in a way it, it is important because Nehemiah, even right here, standing before this king, he takes advantage of this opportunity to pray, doesn't he? Right? You think he could have said, now just follow, this is a true story, all this is true, and uh, you think Nehemiah could have said, all right, king, you've asked me what I want, give me a couple of hours, I'm going to run back and pray to a God that you don't really know, and, uh, and then I'm going to be back in a couple of hours, and then we'll, I'll answer that question. Is that okay? You think Nehemiah did that? 
This means yes, this means no. Okay. No, we didn't do that. But Nehemiah understood the, the weight of this question, and he understood that everything was coming to a head at this one moment. And what he did was he prayed. And, and it, the theologians call these arrow prayers, right? You just kind of like pew, shoot up an arrow prayer real quick, you know, to God. And you've done this before. It was probably when you were, you know, out a little bit longer than you should have been. You missed curfew, and you came home, and your mom and dad were waiting on you. And they said, where have you been? And you're like, oh, God, have mercy. You know, and then you answer the question, right? You, so you've shot these little arrow prayers up before. So Nehemiah gets the question, what would you request? He, he prays to God, and then he answers, verse 5. So I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant, meaning me, right, if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, a thousand miles away. Send me a thousand miles away to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Now we have to understand here that God had to provide things that only God could provide. Nehemiah couldn't walk into the presence of the king and say, King, you know, my people back home, they're going through some hard times, and uh, my heart's kind of breaking, and uh, I think it's a burden. <laughs> so I'm going to be gone for a while. Is that okay? It's probably not going to go well. No, the God of heaven who created that king had to move in that king's heart to begin to provide for Nehemiah to be able to go. And the first thing that happens is, is that God moves, he provides by moving on this king's heart to give Nehemiah what he needed, the approval to leave town and travel a thousand miles back to his homeland. Approval granted. The next thing that Nehemiah needed was that he ultimately, as well, needed authority. And if you read further in through the book of Nehemiah, we'll get here, but you'll see that Nehemiah was, was, uh, was made governor of Judah. For 12 years, he reigned in that capacity. Who do you think granted him that authority? It would have been this king. And so what Nehemiah needed to be able to begin to see this burden acted on was he needed approval, check. He needed authority, you're now the governor, check. But then he also needed resources. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. So I said to the king, well, since we're on a roll here and you're giving me what I'm asking for, if it please the king, then let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house to which I'll go. And the king granted them to me. Why? Because I was so charismatic? No. Because I was a great leader? No. Because I was dashing and handsome and I was able to, you know, uh, uh, be able to express verbally my request with such eloquence? No. He said the king granted these things to me. Why? Because the good hand of my God was on me. In other words, when God burdens Nehemiah's heart for his people and for this need, the need to rebuild the wall, what God did was he gave him that burden because he loved those people and he loved, he, he, he loved the people of, uh, of, of, of uh, Jerusalem. He wanted there to be a wall built, but then he began to provide for that in a way that only God could. And he gave him approval to leave. He gave them the authority by which to travel. He gave, them every res- gave him every resource uh, which he would need to rebuild everything that was broken. And then ultimately he he said, and by the way, here's your letter of commendation so that when you pass through the different regions, they're going to read this letter and see that you're being sent by the king in charge and you're going to be just fine. And God did all of that. Nehemiah, at the end of it, he says, you know what? The only reason God did this 
I can't even explain it, man, but his hand was on me. And it's because God grants burdens by his love, but he always provides for burdens by his power. And what are the implications of that? You may have been praying for certain people for years, right? You may have people in your family. You may have certain needs that you're aware of that you have been praying for, and your heart has this overwhelming sense, sense of empathy, and you have such compassion, and you still to this day, years later, you cry whenever you think about those things right, and you talk about those people because you have such a burden for them, and you've been praying and praying and praying and praying, and there have been times when you've thought, you know what, why do I keep doing this? Man, they are never going to come around. They're never going to come back to God. Nothing's ever going to happen to meet this need. Why do I keep doing this? And you may have just lost sight of the fact that God only is the one who can provide for that burden by provision that only God can make. You know, it's interesting. I've been reading recently uh, about Cuba, right? Having gone there a few weeks ago. And... uh, it's interesting to hear a little bit of the story of what's taking place there. It's an amazing awakening that's going on there now spiritually. But it wasn't always that way. 1959, the revolution started right. Fidel Castro took over uh, through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. It was times of persecution, discrimination. Uh, it, it, churches would be allowed, but they still to this day register with the government there, the communist government. And uh, they could not hold services nor evangelize outside the walls of their property. Everything was inside of their property. In, in the late 80s, early 90s, however, you probably remember the Soviet Union collapse. 85% of the trade that Cuba in, in, uh, was involved in was related to the Soviet bloc countries. And when that collapsed, 85% of their trade was gone. Already under embargo from our country, they went through a time that they called the special period in the early 90s where they had nothing. No cars on the streets. People were fearing to starve for their lives. 51% unemployment. The country was at its lowest point that's when God began to move. And what happened was, is that there was this awakening that began to be birthed from within that country. And people were coming into the churches, right? To such a degree that the churches couldn't hold them all. And so the church leaders begin to ask the government officials, can we build new buildings? The answer was no. Can we somehow add on to our existing facilities? And the answer was no. And in 1992, some specific leaders sat down with a, a, a leader of the Office of Religious Affairs from the Communist Party, right, in Cuba, 1992, and said, we need permission to do this. And he said, you cannot do this. Why don't you just meet in your homes? <laughs> And if you've ever studied ministry and church growth, the way that thing explodes is not when it happens on the inside of a building, it's when it gets out into the communities. And the Communist Party government gave them permission to begin meeting in their homes. And they said, oh, by the way, when your groups get too big, you, can, you, you, know, you, you need to limit them, no more than 12 people. Well, thank you very much. We'll be glad to spread those all throughout our communities. On behalf of the Communist government, we thank you. And it's that awakening that continues still today. A lot of the same restrictions are still in place. It's still the same communist government. But man, God is exploding. The gospel is exploding all over that island. Because God provided in a way that no one would have ever expected. Through persecution and through a government that does not even acknowledge who he is. And the gospel is spreading like never before as a result of it. And you think that the burden that you carry in your heart for that person you're about to give up on is never going to be fulfilled because God can't make it happen? (laughs) God grants burdens by his love. He ultimately provides for those burdens by his power. 
But the last thing that we need to recognize, the last part of that phrase, is perhaps even the most important, that he often, however, fulfills those burdens through his own people. Not by sending angels from heaven, but through his own people. Look at verse 9. So I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. And the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, Sam Ballot, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. We'll get to these two guys later. They're going to be opposed to God's work consistently through this whole book. Verse 11, he says, so I came, Nehemiah says, I came. I prayed for this. God burdened me, and I've left a thousand miles away, and I've come at risk of my own life. So I'm the one who came. I came to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Verse 12, he begins to survey the damage. Look at what it says in the next passage. And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I didn't tell anyone what my God was putting into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And so I went out at night by the valley gate. This is there in the city of Jerusalem, in the direction of the dragon's well, and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. Why would he say this? The wall was in such disrepair that even the animal on which he was riding could not make it over. So he says, I went up at night by the ravine, that's more than likely the Kidron Valley, and I inspected the wall, and I entered the valley gate again, and then I returned. And the officials didn't know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. And otherwise, in other words, Nehemiah said, this is a burden God had given me. God has now provided for me by his power in the midst of this burden, but I had to come to a place where I understood that God was wanting to fulfill this burden and meet the need of his people through me. And I had to make a decision whether I was going to be willing to be answered to that prayer or not. Look at what it says as we move forward and finish out this chapter. So I said to them, you see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate, its gates are burned by fire. And so Nehemiah, counting the cost, says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. And also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. In other words, I told them how God had paved the way, how he had provided for everything in a way that only God could do. And they said, let us arise and build. And so they put their hands to the good work. You think they knew the cost? Absolutely, they knew the cost. Those students that Barry spoke of, all ten of them, you think they know the cost? Absolutely they know the cost. These are adults, these are young adults who have weighed in the balance what the cost will be for them to answer the burden of their heart for the nations. And as they've weighed the cost, they've decided, I'm an answer to my own burden. And it's me that God is calling to go. Some of those countries Barry listed are not easy countries. Not a one of them are easy. Some of them are the most hostile countries that we'll find. Indonesia, one of the hottest places against the gospel on the planet today. And yet God, when he gives a burden and provides for the burden, often fulfills that burden through his own people. So who has God burdened your heart for today? Who is it in the center of your heart? What person? 
What group? Is it a segment of the culture that is being messed with the gospel? Is it a person at work? Is it an enemy? Is it a family member? Is it a specific need that you feel like, you know what, I don't know if God's doing this to anybody else, but I can't get away. I just have this overwhelming sense of, of empathy and compassion and almost like something is compelling me on the inside that I, have to, I need to step into this need. You know what, God probably gave that. And God's promised to provide for that. But he just may, this is something to pray about, he just may want to use you to be the answer to that burden. And what do we think would happen if a church like this, filled with people like us, had a burden like Nehemiah had for the people of this community, this city, the people in our streets and in our own families and on our campuses and in our workplace? What do you think it would look like if we had that kind of a burden and God provided for us like he did for Nehemiah and we were willing to go despite the cost? What do you think God would do? And how long do you think it would take for things to change to where he began to do an awakening that he's been doing for centuries around the globe right here amongst us? Hey, if you don't know him today, there's no greater decision you'll ever make than to choose to give your life to the Savior who died in your place, Jesus Christ. And right where you sit today, if you don't know him, you can choose as an act of your own will to lay down your sin the best that you can and say, Jesus, would you even forgive me and take over from this day forward? And he'll do it. But if you've made that choice, hey, listen, it's not the end. It's only the beginning because there's a whole world around us God wants to reach because he loves them. And he often burdens us to be a part of their answer. Let's pray. God, all through Scripture, we see a picture of your heart for people, your creation. You knew what it would cost you when you made us. You knew before you ever breathed life into Adam and Eve that mankind would rebel and sin and it would require your own son to pay for it. And Lord, I am still amazed as to why, knowing all of that, you still made us anyway. And so, God, as we sit here in the quietness of this moment, I pray that you would somehow, in a way that only you can, begin to build in us an overwhelming sense of empathy and compassion, a burden for the people around us, lost people that you've died for. And Lord, people that are worthy of our sacrifice and our efforts and us getting in the trenches, getting dirty with them because somebody got in the trenches and got dirty for us. And so, Lord, I pray that, that in the days to come that this church will be characterized by a church that prays, a church that is connected to you. And where your heart hurts, our heart hurts. Where your heart breaks, our heart breaks. And, Lord, that it not be about our comfort and us getting what we want and what we need. Thankfully, Lord, you do bless us and you do take care of us. But, Lord, there is a world outside these walls that needs you. And there are people within a stone's throw of this church building that would die and spend forever separated from you in hell lest they hear the gospel and see it demonstrated in a compelling way through our lives. And so, God, may we be those people. Not worry about what other churches in this city do, but, Lord, may we just simply seek to be those people that say, Lord, here am I, send me. Burden our hearts, provide for the needs, and even use us to get the gospel to those who need to hear. So whatever decisions we need to make today, God, to get us there, 
I pray that you'd help us to make them. And Lord, if we're so cold-hearted and so distant from you that we can't even fathom what it must be like to be burdened for another, may our decision today be to just confess that and to repent. Because that's not, that's not who you are, a God that's distant and cold. And Lord, we want to be like you. So bless these decisions we make. And do your work and have your way as we sing now over these next few moments. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.